Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. I'm going to be reading from Habakkuk chapters 1 to 3. I'll be reading the selected verses from the interaction between Habakkuk and God. This summarizes that conversation and the words will be on the screen uh, behind me. You'll be able to read from pages 940 to 943. And if you are new and you want to learn more, feel free to take some of the Bibles. So this is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The Lord's answer, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places that are not their own. Then Habakkuk says in response, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Habakkuk then finishes this bit by saying, I will stand at my watch and station myself at the ramparts. I will look to see what he is to say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. The Lord then replies, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For a revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. God continues, Woe to him who builds a city in bloodshed and establishes a a town by crime. Has not the Lord determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Finally, Habakkuk responds, Lord, I have heard of your fame and I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day, O Lord. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the holy mount, the holy one from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. And Habakkuk finishes by saying, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig trees do not bud and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stores. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to go to the heights. This is the word of God. Um, Dear Lord, I just want to pray today. I want to thank you that we are able to even stand here and sit here in peace, in freedom, that we can read your word unlike many other nations. And I pray that today as we read your word, as Andy preaches your word today, I pray that your word will be able to ignite something in our hearts and allow us all to live the way you want us to live and be who you want us to be. Amen.
Amen. Cheers, David. That was a good long one. Good effort. Nine years ago, I was uh, in Switzerland with a friend on a short holiday um, up in the mountains. There was no snow, so you could climb up the mountains. So we one day wanted to go up and have a really nice view of the mountain. But we are cheapskates, so we decided to not take the cable car. Um, and we're also impatient, so we decided to not take the gravel path that led you up to the top. Instead, we decided to try and scale up directly straight up the cliff face. Um, and halfway up this cliff face, we started to wonder whether this was the right thing to do. Then, three hours later, at the top, sprawled on a bench, bleeding, bruised, sweating, as these old-age pensioners walked past us out of the cable car, looking at us quite curiously, we vowed to ourselves, in the future, if there's a cable car, take it. <laughs> but sometimes, when you're facing a mountain, there is no cable car to get you to the top. One of those mountains that we want to consider today is the journey to wisdom. It's the cry for wisdom, the cry to understand God's reality, God's picture of the world. It's to understand or have a depth of insight into good and evil. It's to be able to discern right from wrong. It's to be able to work out what's going on in my world and in the world around me right now. How do I gain a heavenly perspective on such a matter. That is a mountain that faces every single one of us. There's many of those mountains throughout our lives. Perhaps you're facing one right at the moment, trying to work out what's the right thing to do, what's the right thing to say, to think. How can I possibly have any understanding, any grasp of what's in front of me right now? That's the cry of Habakkuk. Specifically on his lips is this one very powerful question. Something's wrong. Does God care? You heard it being read. His, he starts the prayer. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Essentially, Habakkuk is asking the age-old question, how could a good and powerful God allow suffering to continue for so long? And what I want to suggest is there is actually only one way up this mountain, and it's through prayer. Now, many, many people have tried to wrestle with this question for many, many years, in all different manners and all different perspectives. And they've all searched and written so much about this kind of a question. But I don't think it's possible, learning from Habakkuk, I don't think it would be possible to gain God's perspective on the matter, which surely is the most important, without the journey of prayer. And I, reading this... And reflecting on it, I think Habakkuk's quite a lonely figure climbing this mountain. Because not many, not many people are prepared to go up this mountain of faith, to walk up this mountain, to ask this question of God in prayer. For some, 
They simply don't believe that there could possibly be a good answer at the top of the mountain. Many have gone away from faith or not even approached Christianity because in their minds there could not possibly be a good answer to the question, how could a good God and powerful God allow suffering? So they simply don't attempt to climb. Others don't care anymore. Maybe they started caring about such a question. Maybe they were very invested in the suffering of others and trying to work this through, but maybe they've got compassion fatigue. As time goes on and as they've been trying to pour out and search and ask questions, they've got hardened to the reality of it. Maybe they started in this sort of world of loving and caring and charity, but became hardened over time because nothing seemed to be changing and now they just don't care. Maybe they've detached themselves from the reality. Maybe they've moved into a much more comfortable area of the world where they don't actually have to wrestle with this question day in, day out. Some people have got the privilege of being able to do that. Many in the world don't, though. Perhaps some people are not climbing this mountain because they've chosen comfort. Some things work faster in trying to reconcile the evils of the world, in trying to feel some sort of comfort in a dark place. Some people won't go to prayer. Many men go to porn instead because it's quicker, faster, helps more immediately. Prayer takes time and is often more uncomfortable. And then some maybe were climbing with Habakkuk for the first part of the journey but gave up because it was too long a climb, because this was a journey that actually they thought they would get up faster, they thought there might be a cable car at some point or a shortcut, but they've given up praying. Habakkuk doesn't give up praying, and I want to suggest it's because he starts with the right equipment. Now, you can get up certain hills, you can walk up certain mountains with less than good equipment, Um, or a less than good waterproof jacket, or a less than good shoes, but certain mountains you need the right equipment or else you will not be able to get anywhere close to the top. This mountain is one of those, and Habakkuk starts with the right assumptions, I think. In verse 3, he asks this question, God, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? I found this helpful article um, as I was searching for this. To be honest, it answered nearly all my questions because it's a paper called Habakkuk, A Guide to Prayer. So uh, (laughs) I got a lot from this. Um, And actually, I'd I'd encourage you, it's free online. It's a very good paper. Looks very academic, but actually it's really heartwarming. But she says this, which I think is really helpful. Habakkuk assumes that God knows what's going on that God cannot accept what is blatantly wrong, and that God has power to act. However, right now God is not acting. He is not putting a stop to this suffering, and instead seems to be tolerating the wrong. The lesson I learned from Habakkuk right at the start is he's got the right assumptions that he needs in order to be able to take this journey of prayer. If he doesn't have these assumptions, he will have to give up. He believes that, or he believed that God could, would, and should do something about suffering, about injustice, about this circumstance in front of him. If he didn't start with 
any of those assumptions, he would not be able to climb this mountain in prayer. He would find himself giving up very early on. Sometimes when it comes to very difficult matters, we might try and save God's blushes a little bit. We don't want to ask the awkward questions. We don't want to push too hard because this might make God look a bit bad or a bit unkind or a bit unjust. Or even we resort to overly simplistic answers to complex questions. We turn it around and say, well, maybe God is asking us, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Or we get a bit sarcastic or a bit cynical about prayer. But Habakkuk doesn't do any of that. Habakkuk obviously has a high view of human responsibility or else he wouldn't be praying this kind of prayer. But it doesn't mean that he stops praying. It doesn't mean that prayer isn't at the absolute top of his priority list in engaging with the matters of this world. For Habakkuk, it's not simply enough to give up on prayer and resort to action instead. Because climbing this mountain, Habakkuk knows if the creator is not invested in this, if the creator is not going to do anything about this, then what in all of creation could possibly solve the problem? What in all creation could do more than the creator himself? So Habakkuk keeps climbing, and he keeps pressing on up this mountain. Because if he removes God's ultimate responsibility, then he's also removed the option, the possibility of ultimate rescue, of an ultimate solution. So he bravely continues to climb. And as he does, he hits the vertical climb, the impossible overhang, the moment when it seems like God has done the wrong thing. He prays this prayer, and the response Habakkuk gets horrifies him. God essentially says to him, I'm going to do immeasurably more than you can possibly think or imagine. I'm going to send in the most ruthless nation on earth to tackle the injustice in Israel. Babylon were becoming known for their horrendous treatment of people and their awesome power in that area of the world. When they came into a nation, they didn't bring in peaceful reform. They made everything worse for that nation. They brought violence and even greater injustice. It's a bit like, imagine that you're an ant and you're upset with how all the other ants are treating one another. So you pray out, Lord, save us ants. And he says, don't worry, I'm sending in the wasps. They'll deal with the problem. That doesn't seem like a satisfactory answer. But in this moment, Habakkuk feels like he's just poked the wasp's nest. Now he's invested in this, and there's more uncomfortable questions coming to the surface. There's even more problems arising out of the prayers that he is praying. Because this, to all intents and purposes, makes him feel incredibly uncomfortable at what God has just said. How could that possibly be right? How could that possibly be how a good God deals with a problem? How could a loving God possibly say a thing like that? That's the situation he's finding himself in at the moment. Now, modern spirituality in different forms and disguises would 
is generally a self-help system. It generally will tell you whatever you want to hear. That's why it changes and adopts the different cultures that emerge in the world. Biblical spirituality often presents you with very uncomfortable answers to your problems. It often doesn't provide a neat and tidy thing that feels right on the inside. And Habakkuk, in this moment, as he's praying and he's hit this vertical wall, it seems like there is no possible way up. He has a dilemma. Because he could have just gone back to Israel. Around Israel at the time were many false prophets who were more than happy to give you a prophecy about how your life was going to turn out brilliantly and were more than happy to say that everything's going to turn out well in the end. You just have to hold on and be, everything will be fine. There were many false prophets in Israel at this moment. Habakkuk could have gone to one of them, settled in, tried to live the comfortable life, But what would you prefer to base your life on? A solid rock that doesn't change or shifting sands that do? Habakkuk decides, I'm not going to go to that. I am going to stand where I am or hang on to what I'm currently holding on to. And this is where I learned a couple of lessons at this moment when it seems like there is no possible way forward. Your prayer has hit a brick wall What do you do? Well, Habakkuk seems to stop, look, listen, and repeat. Before he throws out any more questions, Habakkuk stops where he is. And he assesses the handholds that he is gripping onto right now. For me, my tendency is often when I hit a difficult situation, I just let go. But letting go will only lead one way when you're rock climbing. He knows at this moment there's no apparent way forwards, but he is holding on to something, and he reassesses what is it that he's holding on to. And he says this in chapter 1, verse 12. God is everlasting and cannot die. He reminds himself The God I'm speaking to is the God who was there before and will be there after. He is the beginning and the end. He is everlasting. He is bigger than all of this. And he will not die. He will not perish like the idols or the gods of other nations. This is the true eternal God. That's one thing he holds on to. Next, my God. I have known God personally acting in my life. I know a personal relationship with God. He has come through for me in different ways at different times. I know that deep down in my heart. Habakkuk reminds himself, this is my God. And then God is holy. He is morally perfect. And he is committed to ridding the world of sin. He's put himself on that hook. We don't need to get God off that hook. He has said that it is his responsibility to ultimately deal with sin and injustice and evil in this world. He's signed his name on that deed. He is going to do it. Habakkuk holds on to these three truths and says, even though I can't see any way forwards, I can at least hold on and wait. The next thing he does is looks and listens. 
at the beginning of chapter 2, but it's actually the end of Habakkuk's prayer. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. He doesn't simply run up to God, cast his burdens at God's feet, run away and forget about all of the issues. He anticipates answers to his prayer. He doesn't say, God, you deal with it, whatever, it doesn't matter, and I'll carry on with life. He stands and waits. He has a posture of faith and says, God, I am going to make a record of this, and I am going to wait until you answer this prayer in some fashion. I am going to be looking, and I am going to be listening for the answers to my prayers, because this matters. That's a challenge for me. All too often I forget the prayers that I've prayed. They seemed very important at the time, but then they fade into the background. Habakkuk waits. He stops, he looks, he listens, because potentially there's a gap in the rock that I haven't yet seen that I could get my fingers into. Maybe there's a root sticking out from a tree trunk that is just out of my eyesight and I could grab onto that, or there's a foothold that would lead me in a slightly different direction. That's sometimes how God answers our prayers. If we look and we listen and we assess what's going on, he might guide us in a slightly different direction, but to the same ultimate end. But we do need to take that posture of faith to stop, look, and listen. And then he repeats. Habakkuk's second prayer is more or less the same as his first prayer. It's just louder and more detailed. It's like knocking on a door and then knocking loud. How that hurts. Knocking louder. He increases the volume. He says to God again, Why do you tolerate the treacherous? I'm not stopping with this prayer. I know that this is the right prayer to pray, and I'm going to keep on knocking on the door. But actually, it's interesting. He's gone bigger with this prayer. He's gone broader because he's climbed up the mountain higher. He's now seeing things on a bigger horizon from a higher perspective. So he's not only praying about the injustice in Israel. In this second prayer, he's praying about the injustice in the world, in Babylon specifically, but in the whole world around him. Because God is not just invested in sorting out injustice in his people, but actually in the entire world and all the nations. Because this world belongs to God. Habakkuk has got to that point in his climb up the mountain and he's repeating the prayer just louder and with more detail. And as he climbs, as he's got to this higher perspective, as he looks out at the horizon, he sees a vision that God has given him. A beginning to the answer of his prayer. And what he sees is a Huge, giant man, puffed up on arrogance, greedy on gain, dealing out injustice to nation upon nation, building his foundation upon bloodshed and tears, taking people captive and using them as slaves. It is the epitome of what sin drives human beings to do. It is a picture of Babylon as a person, but it's also a picture of the nations that have turned away from God. 
simply anyone who is not following God by faith. This is a picture, a vivid depiction of that person on the horizon. And then Habakkuk hears five woes. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods. Woe to him who builds his kingdom by unjust gain. Woe to him who builds the city with bloodshed. Woe to him who gets his neighbors drunk and abuses them. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Essentially, woe to him who worships any idol that is not the true, everlasting, and living God. And then as Habakkuk hears these woes come from heaven, he turns around and sees another figure approaching from the south. Initially small in stature, but growing and getting bigger and colossal. And this individual turns out to be more powerful than anything in all creation. Glory comes from his hands. He is holy and splendid. There is honor upon him. And he is dealing out destruction in a righteous way. He is bringing the right judgment of God against all injustice against all sin, and he is marching towards the first person that we saw, this first giant. He is heading in his direction, and he has an intention to bring him down, bring him to justice, bring in even more destruction than this original figure could deal out. Human beings can cause a lot of damage, but God can deal out a lot more, because God is committed to ridding this world of sin, totally destroying it, throwing it into the lake of fire. Everything that is turned against God will be dealt with in the end. This is that figure heading up from the south. And did you notice at this point, Habakkuk prays a different kind of prayer. At the beginning of his prayer in chapter 3, He said, you you couldn't but say this when you're seeing this vision of this majestic figure. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, and in our time make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Essentially, Habakkuk started out this prayer asking for wrath. He finishes the prayer asking for mercy. What's happened to him? Why the change of heart? Well, I want to suggest it's because he's got closer to God's heart on the issue. It's because he's approached God in the right humility and he's started to become more and more transformed to the likeness of God. And he starts to pray this prayer a prayer for mercy. He starts to intercede for the guilty. He starts to pray that God would actually deal out forgiveness. And he's realizing in this moment, as he looks at that figure marching from the south, that this figure is marching more slowly than he originally wanted. But why is that? It's not because God is absent. It's because God is patient. God is not tolerating evil and wrongdoing. He's waiting for people to repent and turn. Because God is absolutely committed to filling this whole earth with, his, with the knowledge of his glory 
because the whole earth is his in the first place. He has absolute rights and claims over the whole thing. This patch of Westminster, wherever you live, wherever you go on holiday, wherever we pray for, North Korea, God has a righteous claim over those nations, over every corner of the world, and he's promised that he is going to fill the world with the knowledge of his glory one day. But what Habakkuk, I think, is learning is that God is not wanting to do that in spite of people. Because if God simply dealt out judgment on every individual, every human being, there would be no one to know of his glory in the end. He would have ridded the world of every single one of us. But he is patient and kind. And it's found in the very famous verse that comes from Habakkuk and gets used over and over again in the New Testament. The righteous will live by his faith. Now the question is, who is the righteous? And whose faith are we talking about? Now you might initially think, well Habakkuk is the righteous one because he prayed a lot. And to some extent there's truth in that, but there's a more profound truth that you can find at the end of Habakkuk's prayer. He essentially prays this, though nothing has changed, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Why? Well, because the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Usually when someone reaches the top of a mountain, they will take a selfie. And essentially in this selfie, they are saying, look what I achieved. Habakkuk reaches the top of this mountain, finishes his prayer, and says, look at what God achieved. Look at what God has done. Look how he strengthened me. Look how he enabled me. Look how he gave me power and understanding. He has equipped me the entire way up this mountain, whether I realized it or not. Habakkuk has come to this moment of clarity that even though he felt totally alone climbing this mountain, God was there with him every step of the way. Every handhold he gripped onto, every foothold he rested his weight on, they were from God. Every breath, every bit of protection against the wind, that was from God. Every moment of understanding, that was God. He was with me every step of the way. That is the great realization, I think, of Habakkuk. You could ask, again, who is the righteous? And I think there's a really interesting illustration in the person of Daniel. Habakkuk is praying this prayer, and he is seeing that Babylon are going to come in and destroy Israel, or judge um, the nation of Judah, and they are going to take many people captive into their land, but then God says, now I'm going to judge Babylon for their evil and their injustice. But the likelihood is, if you look at the history and the timings, Habakkuk probably never saw this prayer fully answered. He probably didn't live until the Babylonia, when the Babylonians came. But one guy did, Daniel. Daniel was there when Babylon came and captured them, and he was taken into Babylon. 
He then survived through various different circumstances in Babylon. And then he experienced and witnessed the judgment of Babylon by the Persians. When the Persian Empire, the Persians and the Medes were raised up and they came and destroyed Babylon, Daniel survived through the whole thing. He saw the fulfillment of this prophecy personally in his life. The history books can tell you that. So why? Why did Daniel survive? Well, on the lowest level, it's because he was faithful to God in all of the trials and all of the situations. But on a much higher level, it was because God was faithful to him. It was because God had given him everything he needs. God had kept his promise that he says in Habakkuk, he deals it out in Daniel's life. He is absolutely committed to his promises. But I just want to elevate that question once more. Who is the righteous? Well, remember that giant coming from the south, marching towards Babylon, this warrior king, this mighty one from God. 400 years later, this warrior king was climbing up his own mountain, a mountain that only he could climb. He was climbing up that mountain in order to deal with injustice and deal with sin, finally, and to defeat the powers of darkness at the top of this mountain. And when he got to the top of this mountain, Jesus Christ hung on a cross, not only crying out the prayer of a prophet, Father, forgive them, but becoming the ultimate intercessor because he didn't just pray for mercy instead of wrath. He experienced wrath so that we could experience mercy. He experienced the full judgment of God upon him against all of our injustice and our sin. He took the fight to the realms of darkness and totally destroyed them by taking our place on the cross. He experiences wrath so that we could receive mercy. Now, what has this got to do with you and me? Isn't this just a remarkable story from the past? An amazing man called Habakkuk, then what Jesus did? Well, don't get yourself off the hook so quickly. Because the Apostle Paul prayed a remarkable prayer 2,000 years ago for everyday Christians in a place called Colossae. And this is from Colossians. And this is Paul's prayer. And I'll read through it and make a few comments. And I'd like you to put the dots together and see how you fit into this story. He says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Understanding God's will in your life, there is no cable car to the top. Through all wisdom and understanding. The Bible says over and over again, the beginning of wisdom is not a university degree. It's the fear of God. That's what Habakkuk has at the end of his prayer. He is trembling, he says. He is quaking at this experience with God that he has personally had. 
He doesn't get that vicariously through another preacher or from a friend. He personally experiences this fear, this awe, this wonder of God. And that is the foundation for his wisdom. That the Spirit gives. The Bible says, ask, seek, knock, keep knocking, and God your Father will give you the Holy Spirit to empower you in every situation in life, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. The righteous will live by his faith, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. At the beginning of Habakkuk's final prayer, he says, God, make these things known, or as Michael Eaton translates it, give us knowledge about these things in our day. Growing in the knowledge of God. Habakkuk only grew in the knowledge of God through continued persevering prayer up this mountain of wisdom. Being strengthened with all power, Habakkuk finishes his prayer. The Lord is my strength. I've realized that now. According to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Habakkuk prays at the end the remarkable statement, He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. He enables me to live a life that stands up to anything in my path. I don't know if you would describe yourself at the moment when you face mountains as like a deer being able to just scamper up the side of it. But that is what's possible through prayer. Being able to, I I don't think Habakkuk would have prayed that kind of prayer at the bottom of the mountain. He would have thought, oh my goodness, my feet are going to slip, I'm going to fall. But by the time he got to the top, God had enabled him to tread on the heights, to press through every situation in life, and giving joyful thanks to the Father. He finishes his prayer, I will rejoice in the Lord. You're brought to that point. At the beginning, he did not feel like rejoicing in the Lord, but through continuous prayer, climbing this mountain, he reaches the top and he rejoices in God, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Now, the final question, how has any of that become possible for you, for me, for Habakkuk? Well, it's because he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, that warrior king who is claiming the nations as his own. The father is giving all things to him and it's in him that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This warrior king of light who marches from the south He says, I am going to bring all nations under my feet and I am going to rescue anyone who switches their allegiance to me. I am going to bring down all of the kingdoms of darkness, but I will save anyone that puts their faith in me. I think the most important thing to start this journey of wisdom is remembering that before you even attempt to climb any of the mountains that are currently in front of you, remember that he climbed a mountain that you could never climb. 
for you, specifically. And at the top of that mountain, in wrath, he remembered mercy for you. So this brings us to taking communion together. If the communion service could come up, if the band could head to the front. Jesus, the merciful warrior king who deals with all sin and all injustice and all wrongdoing and all violence, he said to his disciples, he gave them a very simple thing to do, some bread, some wine, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember mercy. As you take communion, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've switched your allegiance to him, you're invited to take this. As you do, imagine it is him giving it to you as a gift, and he is saying to you, remember mercy, because wrath became mine. This is yours, because all of your sin became mine, and I dealt with it at the top of that mountain. This is the first step on the mountain, climbing up whatever mountains you're facing. And he will give his Holy Spirit to those who press on and persevere. He will give you the strength to climb. But it always starts at this point of remembering that he he experienced the wrath of God for you so that you could experience the mercy of God in him. That's the note we'd like to take communion on. And then as we take it, we remember all of those things that he has done for us. We ask for his Holy Spirit to fill us. And then we rejoice, as Habakkuk did, at the top of this mountain because of his achievement for us. So we're going to head forward. We're going to take this back to our seats, reflect on anything that struck you, and then we're going to sing together in response. Why don't we stand, I'll pray, and then we'll head forwards. Father, thank you. We first start by praising you as the true and awesome and mighty God above. All the nations are yours, and this earth will be filled with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. But thank you that you didn't do that in spite of us but that you are doing that through us by your incredible mercy. Thank you that righteousness is ours, life is ours because of the faithfulness of your son to the mission that you gave him and that it is simply through faith alone that we receive that in our lives. So help us to approach communion and take it as a gift from you with the right mindset with the right reverence, confessing our sins as we come, and then come out of it with the right rejoicing and celebration because you didn't stay dead at the top of that mountain. You rose three days later and are now seated above every mountain, above every of our situations, on the highest throne possible over the heavens and the earth. And so we give you all glory and all praise in your name. 
Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how. sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.